What do you think about when you hear the term witch hunt? While the phrase has decidedly become loaded over the years, a weapon to wield against one's opponents, for many of us the term witch hunt still conjures up visions of angry mobs with torches and pitchforks. We think of a group of riled up men in hot pursuit of some accused person. We think of vigilante justice rather than justice being pursued in a courtroom. We think of people taking the law into their own hands in some attempt, whether justified or not, at prevailing over some perceived injustice or evil. And while the Salem witch trials were most decidedly a witch hunt, and certainly unjust, it's important to remember that they were in fact actual trials. Complaints were filed, grand juries were convened, indictments were handed down, and even a special court, the court of Oyer and Terminer, a term that means to hear and to determine, was eventually set up to try the cases. And all of this judicial apparatus was based on the actual legal precedent of the day. And the judgments that were handed down were based on testimony, evidence, and other time-tested methods of adjudication. While American history is littered with miscarriages of justice, it's difficult not to wonder how they could have gotten it so wrong in Salem in 1692. How exactly could dozens of people actually be convicted of witchcraft, 19 of them executed after going through judicial due process? How could the system have failed so badly? To help us unpack this important question, we're joined by Jane Campbell Moriarty the Carol Lose Mansman Chair in Faculty Scholarship and Professor of Law at the Thomas R. Klein School of Law at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Professor Moriarty is an expert on evidence and has studied and written about its use during the Salem Witch Trials. I was a new law professor and I was thinking about what I wanted to write about. And at that time, my primary area of interest was expert testimony. And as a New Englander, as someone who had grown up in New England and who had worked for the judges in the Massachusetts court system, I was really interested in what happened at Salem. When we think about the Salem witch trials, we tend to focus on the injustice of the result rather than what had to occur in order for that injustice to take place. One way to understand it is by looking at the evidence that was presented against the accused. Professor Moriarty's research has focused on three key areas of evidence that played a major role at the Salem Witch Trials, including a particular form of evidence that often raises our eyebrows today. Spectral evidence refers to this belief that when a person had made a covenant with the devil, he was given permission to assume that person's appearance in spectral form. And he could recruit others, he could carry out deeds. And so witchcraft victims testified that the specter, this image of a witch, would appear to them often at night in their bedrooms and would urge them to cast their lot with the devil and his followers. So there were also claims that these specters would not only attempt to lure the victims into joining the devil, but would threaten to inflict very real injury on the victims if they did not. The specters would promise the victims benefits, and the specters would threaten them with very real harm. 
It was consistently admitted in the Salem trials, and it was admitted generally in three different ways. First, there was testimony by observers about witnessing victims who were afflicted by specters. So testimony about what happened outside of the court. For example, when these young girls were writhing on the floor, screaming in pain, their bodies contorted. So there would be testimony about these events. Secondly, there would be observations in court of victims apparently being afflicted by those on trial. And there would be testimony by victims about spectral torment that occurred outside of court. So, for example, when they were visited at night, these victims were visited at night, and they would tell the court about the events and how they had happened. I think it's fair to say a lot of people were skeptical of the evidence. But given how the trials began and then continued to grow at an alarming rate, people were very afraid to say anything. Even though I think spectral evidence is incredibly difficult for us to understand, you have to remember at the time, belief in the invisible world was very strong. And also, it wasn't only that there was belief in the devil and God. There was belief in magical thinking that was very strong. Part of the problem here was that there were no good explanations for why cows were becoming sick. There were no good explanations for why pigs were having fits and dying. And so instead of a science explanation or what we think of science now, a lot of this was ascribed to both divine and demonic forces. that spectral evidence presents is it's a form of gaslighting. Can you or can you not trust what you're seeing in these children who claim to be pricked and hit and hurt? They're crying out that they're in pain, but the question is, are, are you being gaslighted or is it real? And when the ministers are saying it's real, who are you to doubt? Beyond the sensationalism of spectral evidence, Professor Moriarty reminds us that other, often more mundane forms of evidence were also used to great effect at the trials. Also important here was this concept of syndrome evidence. What syndrome evidence is, is a conclusion or a presumption about the existence of criminal activity that is based upon observable behaviors or symptoms exhibited by an alleged victim. In other words, syndrome evidence requires a belief that there's a meaningful relationship between the criminal activity, which is the cause, and the observable behaviors or symptoms in the victims. So we can think about that with child sexual abuse. We can think about that with the Salem witchcraft trials. Trying to establish causation is complicated, and we often get confused between correlation and causation. And this is simply because of the way humans think. We see something happen, and we see it happen again, and then we assume there's a causation behind it. In the Salem witchcraft trials, it worked. 
What happened in Salem was that they began to ascribe a diabolical cause for these probable natural events. And so pigs would be having fits, and people would remember that a certain woman had walked by the pig earlier in the day. They would start to think it was witchcraft that had occurred. Inexplicable fits and behaviors, contortions by children, illness, and even death were ascribed a diabolical cause. Those running the trials also believed that there were certain types of observable behaviors or physical attributes in not victims, but perpetrators, and that those would identify them as witches. So things that seem perfectly normal, like skin tags, suddenly took on a new meaning as devil's marks. And also there were a lot of tests that were being used, such as the touching test, to see if when a witch allegedly touched someone, they would react violently and horribly. They also used this recitation of the Lord's Prayer test to see if people could recite the Lord's Prayer without error. So those I've also gathered under this concept of profile testimony. And what that is, is a conclusion about the existence of criminal activity that's based upon observable behaviors or physical features of an alleged perpetrator. It doesn't have the tight connection of seeming causation that syndrome evidence has. It's a looser one, but it was still used in the trials and, you know, and for decades. This kind of evidence, in addition to spectral evidence, was prevalent in the trials. And of course, nothing is ever proven to be more powerful at the Salem Witch Trials or any other trial than the Almighty Confession. The role of confession and inculpating others was very strong in Salem. Confession has always been termed the queen of evidence uh, going back hundreds of years. And we really like confessions. I think they satisfy us on some level that we've gotten the right person for the crime. I think confessions assuage our conscience that we haven't convicted a person wrongfully. So throughout history, confessions have been important. They were important in Salem. It very quickly became apparent that the best way to stay alive was to confess, throw yourself on the mercy of court, and then inculpate others. Those that continued to press for innocence often were hanged. Those that confessed and inculpated others survived. We really like to hear confessions. We we say confession is good for the soul. It also absolves us of the responsibility of convicting another person for a crime. During the witchcraft trials, for example, in England, confession was a required part of the proceeding. And they thought of that as an important way for them to cleanse their soul. But I am sure it also assuaged the guilt of those who were torturing them. We also believe we have the right person in contemporary times when we have a confession. And yet, as scholars have shown us, the, the risk of false confession is high, and many people confess to things they did not do. So why did all these people in Salem confess to things that we don't even believe are real? I think there's two things going on. The first thing, of course, about confession is that at the time, people strongly believed 
in the influence of the divine and the diabolical in their daily lives. And so it was not beyond their imagining that they could have been in consort with the devil, that the devil could have come to them at night. These were things they believed in. These were things they had been instructed by ministers could happen. So the fact that they confessed to it, it was consistent with their worldview about the devil being at large, trying to entrap people. The second aspect of confession is that you would have been crazy not to confess because the people who were confessing and inculpating others were staying alive and they weren't hanging. And so we see that even now in modern trials where confession and inculpation of others is one of the ways you get what's called in federal court a downward departure. And the downward departure means you are less culpable, according to the court, for your actions. So you agree to testify against someone else and your sentence is dramatically reduced. Now, the difference in modern day trials is that we have lots of evidence. We have documentary evidence. We have electronic evidence showing where people were. We have text. We have emails. We have lots of physical evidence. We have lots of cooperating witnesses who tell consistent stories that can be proved. In Salem, we didn't have that kind of evidence. We had some physical evidence like poppets and dolls that were allegedly used in witchcraft. We had confession. We had syndrome evidence, profile evidence, and spectral evidence. And that's about all we had. At the time, to prevail in a felony case, you had to have the testimony of two reliable witnesses who were men uh, to testify. But in Salem, we often didn't have that because much of the alleged witchcraft occurred in secret, out of the courtroom, and not in front of people. So the kind of evidence they had was very different in this case. And it's important to recognize that the magistrates and judges who tried the accused during the Salem witch trials weren't just making it up as they went along. Their decisions were based on set standards and long-standing precedent. They relied in part on experts. They have William Perkins' Discord on the Damned Art of Witchcraft. They have Richard Bernard's Guide to Grand Jurymen addressing the discovery and conviction of witches. And these were long-standing, well-accepted treatises for how to prove when one was a witch. And they had differences between a presumption that was somebody who was engaged in witchcraft and evidence sufficient for conviction. You can have due process and complete unfairness that exist next to each other. You can have structured rules for how people are convicted, and yet we can still admit evidence that allows people to be convicted unfairly. Trials then and trials now are a reflection of society, the reflection of our beliefs, of our humanity, and also of people who go way outside the bounds of propriety and commit crimes that we think need to be punished. At the time, the biggest crime going was being in league with the devil. And so in their minds, I assume, they did it correctly. And they did it by the book.
Yet beyond the evidence that was presented and the judicial precedent that was employed, or even the biases of those prosecuting the accused, there was something much deeper and more powerful driving the actions that were taken during the Salem witch trials. As with many prosecutions throughout history, fear is at the root of it. What we don't understand, what we are afraid that has been let loose in our world is what we go after. I think what we were seeing then was fear writ large. Fear in the community of the devil, fear of dying, and that God wasn't saving them. And so they struck back hard at what they believed was demonic influence. While it might not have been a torch and pitchfork-wielding mob in pursuit of those who were accused at Salem in 1692, the reality was in fact much more frightening. Legal precedent and procedure powered by uncontrollable levels of ever-increasing paranoia and fear helped to drive these tragic events forward. We're just getting started. There's so much more to explore and discover about the Salem Witch Trials, and we'll continue to go deeper in our future episodes. Thanks for joining us. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and share our podcast with your friends. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.